Welcome to Why Though. We're your hosts, Tiffany Bloom and Ashley Abercrombie. We land somewhere in between Mother Teresa and Biggie Smalls, and we're just wondering, why though? We all have questions, from our existential crisis curiosities to our, hey girl, why your eyebrows look so good though? And we want to tackle all of those questions with you. Well, welcome back to Why Though. We are so thrilled to be with you in our summer series, How'd She Do That? And we are meeting with women who are becoming something beautiful in the world and who are doing incredible work in the world. And we're asking them, how did they become that? How did they do that? And so far, the series has been so awesome. And we've been learning so much from our guests and from the conversations that we're having. So thank you guys so much for participating with us. And Tiffany and I are thrilled to um, bring someone to the table this morning that is someone we're a huge fan of. We love Kat Armas. She is amazing, one of the best humans. She's an incredible writer. We're going to tell you all about her book. And if you're not following her on Instagram or Twitter, you need to. This girl is full of hilarity, and she is also full of justice and full of love of people. And she's really great at bringing life and joy and also truth and justice to your feed. So you guys need her in your life. Let me tell you a little bit about Kat before we interview her. So she has an MDiv and an MAT. Kat, I don't even know what an MAT is. Can you fill in the dummies on the um, on the <laughs> podcast here and talk to tell us what an MAT is real quick? Yeah, just a Master of Arts in Theology. Bam! From Fuller Theological Seminary. And she hosts a podcast called The Protagonistas, where she highlights stories of everyday women of color. And she's written for Christianity Today, Sojourners, Relevant, Christians for Biblical Equality, Fuller Youth Institute, and Missio Alliance. And she speaks regularly on race and justice. And Kat, it is our honor and privilege to have you here on our podcast. So why don't you tell us? Yeah. Why don't you tell (laughs) us a little bit more about you beyond your bio? Let's hear from you. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm super happy to be here. And um, I'm also big fans of both of you. So this is super fun. Um, so about me, uh, I like my bio said, I'm a second generation Cuban American born and raised in Miami. And I think that that little detail is very important. Um, just particularly because of the the Cuban community in Miami. Um, so mm. I was very much part of the dominant culture. I mean, like mm. everybody in Miami is Cuban right. <laughs> or <Right>. at least, <laughs> you know, some form of Latino, uh, Latina, Latinx. So Um, Yeah, that was a a huge part of my upbringing. Uh, And I was raised Roman Catholic, like most people in the city. uh, By, you know, I talk obviously a lot about my grandmother's faith, and she was that beacon, that anchor of my spirituality growing up. And then I got introduced to uh, evangelicalism in my early 20s, and that sort of put me in this whole new um, trajectory. I stepped really quickly into white evangelicalism and then very quickly out of it. Um, And that was, you know, uh, very formative for me in developing a spirituality um, that I'm sort of just figuring out still today. (laughs) So, um, yeah, and then from... Miami. I lived in New Orleans for a few years. I started seminary there and then LA and now I'm in Nashville. So that's a a quick snippet. I can share more as we (laughs) keep, Mm -hmm. you know, keep going. Can I, can I just pull something out of that? That's just too good to pass up Mm -hmm. your formation, which is why we had to have you for the series. How'd she do that? Because you are a voice to the church in North America and at the same time, you didn't grow up in this. You grew up Roman Catholic right. and you were in dominant <laughs> right. culture. So to be a minority in the white evangelical space, 
but to be have such strong heritage and roots in your culture, I think is something that we don't always get the privilege of hearing or or right. really lean and listen to. And that I know that so much of your work is inviting us all to lean in and listen to minority stories. But the way that's embodied in your own story is one of the things that I, one of the reasons I was drawn to you in the very beginning, just your your understanding of two worlds, your ability right, yeah. to be cross-cultural in that nature is something that we can all learn from. So just thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I think that that's, that is, you're right, a big part of, I think, my story and just um, where I speak from. Um, I like to say that I had sort of an advantage that I didn't grow up in the white evangelical church. Um, so when I came into, when I sort of stepped into the scene, um, I was able to, you know, just see a lot of things that, you know, if you're raised in it, that might, you might not catch or, exactly. you know, things like that, exactly. that you might not have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of baggage, of course, as you grow older and you grow in something. Whereas, you know, I was an adult, I was young, but I was an adult. Um, and I, you know, it was a quick, like I said, I quickly stepped in and I was like, whoa, okay, there's a lot of things that are off here and then I was quickly able to step out um so yeah so I I did have sort of that advantage I guess you can say um and because of that you know because stepping into this world um as someone like I said born and raised in a city where everybody around me you know understands who I am like we're all you know we all sort of have the same story the same sort of trauma you know what binds the the Miami Cuban community together is like this idea of exile and you know exile from their country and so that's a huge you know that was a huge um part of my upbringing Mm -hmm. and you know I like to say that when I left Miami you know um actually I was having a conversation with several people I was part of well I am part of the Hispanic summer program and you know we meet and we do classes and we theologize and stuff together and most of the people there were um from you know they're latin american but from a country in latin america and they came over as international students or whatever and most of them were like yeah i had no idea what it was to be a quote-unquote person of color until i left my country i got here and all of a sudden i'm this minority person like what you know and you know i'm from the u.s but i experienced something very similar being from a city that you know is primarily immigrant you know so it wasn't until i left my city and I show up in the subculture of the subculture of white evangelicalism in a Southern Baptist seminary in Southern Louisiana <laughs> that Goodness. I, you know, it, it just was a huge culture shock, Ooh, huge yeah, culture girl. shock. Can y'all even imagine? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that so could I think, be an HBO special, like, right? like a short <laughs> series, you know what I'm saying? Like a mini series, like just three episodes. I mean, like honestly, five minutes they, each. Yes, they made I'm gemstones and it worked. So I feel like, <laughs> right? yeah, you could actually you not this. just bring righteous gemstones onto this. I I did. I, you she have to. It's, it. it's the same thing, isn't it? True. It's like yeah. gemstones did it all. And Kat, yeah. it's so interesting because, I mean, we have totally different lives and different experiences. And obviously, I'm a white person, so there's so much that I don't know and could never understand. But at the same time, like growing up in such a southern culture, you know, in a small, very small town where everyone knows everyone, like everybody knows your business, mm-hmm. they know what you're up to, they know where you are, and then moving to Los Angeles and feeling like, mm. oh, I'm a dumb country bumpkin, like didn't even mm. know that. I didn't know that <laughs> that I was that. You know, and I feel right, like all of right. us, you know, even if we cannot connect around, you know, different social issues that, 
you know, hinder us from moving forward in the world, or at least could be barriers if we allow that. Um, it, it, it's helpful to know that so many people experience this sense of belonging and then outcast. Right, and I right, found that yeah. to be so fascinating in your book and in your work, because I sense that you have such an understanding of what it means to belong, but also what it means to be an outcast. And I think mm-hmm. even if you didn't grow up in evangelical culture or you didn't grow up as an immigrant or, you know, everybody knows what that feels like to feel like you mm-hmm. belong somewhere and then to feel like you don't. And right. I guess like this is a random question, but what would you say to somebody who feels who feels that has a sense of belonging, but maybe currently in their life doesn't feel like they like they're a ship lost at sea, like they feel like yeah. they're not connected anywhere. They don't belong. The culture that they're currently in, they're not understood or loved. What would you say to them? I mean, how did you navigate that? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I wish I had so much more time to think about it um, because I <laughs> <laughs> because I think it is an important question. So the first thing that comes to mind, um, you know, and I think of this as someone who who I would you know I consider myself from two cultures and in a right. way, um, you know, sort of being pulled in two directions. And I know this is a very common thing in like the Latino Latina Latinx world is um, this idea of ni de aquí ni de allá. I'm neither from here nor from there, right? Mm. And I know a lot of people feel that way, um, mm-hmm. obviously physically, like a lot of uh, people in the Latinx community feel that physically, um, but a lot of people feel that spiritually too, or totally. a lot of people yeah. feel that in a lot of different yeah. ways. Um, but something that I, I talk about in my book, I don't remember exactly where it might be toward the end, but I talk about this idea of reclaiming um, and not letting the dominant culture, you know, sort of tell us that, no, you're not from here, from there, but what if we reclaim that and we're both from here and from there? Like I'm mm. a little bit from here and I'm a little bit from there. Mm. And what if that's sacred and that's holy too, right? right. I think that the dominant culture, um, you know, wants everything to be neat and clean and clear and black and white and under, you know, super understandable. And, you know, we have to, you know, just like women have their roles and this is what it's supposed to be and everything's supposed to you know be nice and clear cut um but that's not reality right yeah right. and so when i think of um you know not belonging um there's always going to be somewhere you do belong and there's always going to be somewhere you don't belong and i think that it's in that you know unfamiliar terrain and territory and that weird middle space where so many of us exist we just yes. maybe don't share it or talk about it or you know again because the dominant culture is the one i you know that that carries the narrative um, but I don't know. There, I think that there's something really um, powerful about embracing that sort of no man's land that we all inhabit in some way, shape, or form, and reclaiming it, and mm-hmm. you know, putting a holy, sacred stamp on it, and saying, no, that's actually a like a place that we we all exist in, and um, yeah, that we can all thrive in too. Mm-hmm. That is beautiful. Yes, that's it is. so beautiful. I want to uh, pick into your story a little bit more. So. When you were in Southern Louisiana, what prompted the change to then move to Southern California? Yeah, so, <laughs> well, uh, major culture shock. I, you know, I literally got there and um, even my first few days, I was like, what am I doing here? You know, mm. again, being raised in a large immigrant city, I didn't grow up, um, you know, in any like sort of conservative space. So I was raised by a single mom and a single grandma. And so, you know, we just like women provide provided and women did everything. And I was never, mm. you know, I never had this sense that like I had to act a certain way or be a certain way. Um, you know, I, I honestly, I started drinking and partying very young. And so I felt like I had a lot of these really, um, intense experiences, um, 
So, so yeah, so I had these, you know, just very different experiences from a lot of the people around me who were raised in the church or, um, you know, who, who came from small uh, cities, right? So small southern cities, or excuse me, like towns, right? Mm. Um, and these are all valid experiences, but I was literally like the only one who had my experiences, right? Mm. And I think what was very, um, like the moments that were, that were, that really stood out to me were in class and, you know, I'm, I'm there to learn about the Bible. I'm, I'm there to learn how to exegete scripture. And, and you know, I'm, I'm in seminary and I was excited about these things. And I just remember being taught, um, you know, very much so that there is a certain way to read the Bible or a certain way to understand it. You know, my professors were from like Mississippi, small town Mississippi. They grew up on farms. And, hmm. you know, a lot of the examples or the way that, that they would understand scripture and teach us to understand it was from this context, from being, you know, a small town farmer from Mississippi, which again, those are all valid experiences, but very far from my experience. And so I just felt, I, I started feeling even further and further away from, from God, you know, really like I was like am I even supposed to be here what does this have to do with me like how do my experiences of just having um just a very intense young adulthood um being raised by a single mom you know um in Roman and that was another thing you know my grandma's Roman Catholic and in in a lot of these spaces like she's not a legitimate Christian right or she's Mm, not legitimate she's not saved or so many of these things that it was like wow so my experiences just felt um invalidated I guess um So that was when I really just started searching, like, is this, you know, so everyone that's like me is just completely like not included in the narrative. Like, how does that make sense? You know, and again, like I said, I was an adult, so it was easy for me to, you know, kind of question these things and, you know, think something's not right here. Um, and then I just started seeking out other avenues on my own. You know, I'm, I'm a natural learner. I love to, you know, read and learn and research and all those things. And, and it kind of started with, you know, women. I was very taken by um, the way women were treated or talked about um, or, you know, just things that were said that were just very not okay to me. Um, so I just started reading and researching and I realized, wait a minute, you know, and again, back then I didn't know anything about denominations. All I knew was, you know, there's Catholicism and then there's Protestantism. I don't, I didn't know. I didn't know that there was like Southern Baptist, Methodist. Like I didn't know any right. of that. Um, like very ignorant, but, um, I guess yeah. honestly, blissfully ignorant, but, um, so I realized, wait, there's other, like, there's other things out there and experiences and people and expressions of faith, um, that don't, isn't just, you know, fall into this binary or this dichotomy. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I was in class one day, you know, I, my professor, you know, had already started reading and already started, um, you know, wrestling with these things. And, a professor just made a comment um, about women. Uh, oh, it was, a, I think it was in a hermeneutics class. And he's, you know, he went off on a tangent. I, and I write this in my book. He went off on a tangent about learning Greek and Hebrew and how important it is. And, you know, that those of us in seminary do so. And I'm all like, yeah. And then he stops and says, and ladies, your husbands will be very impressed if you can, you know, read Greek <laughs> oh, and Hebrew next to no. them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and boy. I thought, <laughs> I thought, what? Like, I'm here going through this, you know, I'm spending this money. I'm, I'm paying this your effort. own freaking money. To right. Be there. Right. Like, I'm doing all of this just to impress my husband that I don't, I didn't even have at the time. And mm. oh my goodness. Um, so yeah, a lot of these little experiences and, you know, just doing my own research and learning and 
And, you know, starting at that point, starting to really connect with like my roots and realizing like, wait a minute, here I am in this space that has completely like not validated, uh, you know, my grandmother's faith has made me question her salvation, mm-hmm. like all these things, um, you know, and it just didn't line up. So at that time I was dating my, my husband, you know, my husband now, and you know, we were kind of like, we got to get out of here. You know, we started to, we both started to feel that things were off. Did you meet um, him there then? Yeah, I met on my oh, first Oh, so there week. was some. There were, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. It wasn't a total loss. It wasn't a total <laughs> no. loss. <laughs> no, no, it was great. I mean, he he's from the South. Um, he's white. He grew up there. And he, um, yeah, he always felt like something was just off. He just had no idea what because he had no framework for anything other than that. So it was kind of perfect. Like we kind of met and he was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, like I've felt that something is off. I just couldn't put my finger on it. And I was like, yeah, this is what I think is, you know, kind of not right or whatever. And then we were like, okay, then, you know, we have each other. So, yeah, so that sort of prompted Mm -hmm. my move to the West Coast. Wow. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Really, really appreciate that. Um, How have you come into your own? One of the things I've really appreciated is you are this Cuban woman in academia and specifically in theology and just schooling us on what it means to read the scriptures through a lens not dictated by the kind of men you just explained and of course like you said we're not downplaying their experience or the goodness they bring to scripture how they illuminate uh, the text but there's just such rich beautiful point of views that are often missing and so Mm -hmm. as as you've just shared how that's really come into play in your own story um kind of steers in the direction of how you have approached school and learning and you are a theologian and so how have you approached that um in learning and bringing to light the lesser known stories yeah um thank you that's that's a great question um i think for me i i did go through a period right where um i was very like what's the word um this is how it should be read and this is you know the per- the people you should read of course because i spent my time in a setting where that's how it had to be um and i'm very honestly i look back and with a lot of um maybe shame not entirely shame but i there were experiences or people that i may have um tried to impose that sort of view on them um but as i continued to study i like to say that the the longer i was in seminary the more i realized that i don't know is the most sacred declaration you could make because yes. the more <laughs> so good you know, Right, because the more that you study and learn and the more you even, I mean, just reading church history, the more that you um, learn about different interpretations of scripture and different scholars, the more you realize, like, goodness, I know nothing. Right. Um, But I think for me, what was a very, um, a moment or, or just different moments that sort of started bringing all of this together and bringing it to light into where I am right now is um, again, kind of looking back at the experiences I had growing up. I, I I talk about this in my book, but I had there was this woman who, one of my one of our family friends and one of my grandmother's close friends, and she sort of you know helped raise me. Um, she was a poor brown woman living in Little Havana and this part of you know Miami, and um, you know she lived in this small rundown apartment and she had a very very strong um, faith, but it wasn't a type of faith that you. Or, you know, that dominant culture would say is legitimate. Again, she um, had an altar in her home. 
Uh, her son was was you know he came out as gay in the 1980s, which in a in a city like Miami, that's very machismo and. You know, that is, um, yeah, just not, I mean, also at a time when being a, a gay person um, is not very celebrated or accepted, you know, she felt like she had to really hide that um, just from who she was. And she couldn't, you know, she had this strong faith, but she had nowhere to go to um, that she felt that she would be accepted. Um, so she had her little altar at home, you know, with her mm. with her little candles and her little, you know, whatever. And I would sit there with her. Um, and we would just pray the rosary and we would light our <laughs> candles and we would have these really, you know, sacred moments where I knew she was connecting with God. I knew she was connecting with the divine. I knew that, you know, God was, was, um, listening to her prayers, right? Listening to our prayers. And those moments, um, you know, they really started to come back to me as an adult. Um, the more that I'm studying the Bible and the more that I'm, I'm learning about um, all of these, you know, moments in scripture where things just don't um, look like everything else, right? Where God appears in, in unconventional spaces or where people who are um, outcast from society, right, are um, connecting with Jesus or all these moments. And I, I'm just going back to these like, you know, these moments where I'm just sitting there in, you know, this woman's living room uh, and just praying the rosary and lighting a candle mm. and knowing that God is there, right? Mm. Um, and so I think that um, connecting those moments with her and moments with my grandmother singing on the choir, or, you know, watching her sing on the choir or moments... Um, you know, even her, she, she used to sew and she used to make her own clothes for the community and, and reading the story of Tabitha and scripture and how, you know, when Tabitha died, um, and they, they called Peter to come resurrect her life mm -hmm. and Peter comes and resurrects her life. And then all the women, well, before he does so all the women from the community come and they bring their tunics and they're weeping and they're saying, look, look what Tabitha has done for us. And just thinking about how mm -hmm. holy and how sacred it was that Tabitha would use her hands to create these tunics for the women in the community and how meaningful it was so much so that peter would resurrect her right, right. and then thinking about like my goodness like that's that reminds me of my grandmother right and that reminds me of how she would sew and make you know tunics or dresses or whatever for the women in our neighborhood and our community and how you know at, at her deathbed you know I, I just imagine all the women bringing their tunics and so these moments i'm connecting these real life these legitimate raw experiences with moments in the bible right um i think again of of, of that that family friend who helped raise me, you know, and, and praying in her home. And then I think of, you know, women, outcast women, like the Canaanite woman who, you know, right. kind of runs to Jesus and it's like, I need mercy. You know, no one pays attention to her because her daughter, you know, is seen as her daughter is, is demon possessed or, you know, is not accepted yeah. the same way that this woman's son was seen as, you know, demon possessed or whatever and not accepted. And yet, you know, God meets her there. And right. so just being able to connect these, these moments, these raw, real, um, moments um, with these women that uh, in my life who wouldn't be considered genuine theologians, who wouldn't be given even the time of day, you know, um, and also just finding that in the Bible, you know, I don't yeah. have to learn Greek or Hebrew to, you right. know, to connect those super deep and spiritual moments. But I think that doing that or, or, you know, kind of reflecting on that, I was able to bring my whole self um, to the academic world. Um, and as I'm studying scripture, as I'm doing those formal things like studying Greek and Hebrew, I can still invite, 
you know, those intimate, informal moments or pieces of who I am into the narrative. And, and yeah, have all of that kind of um, mesh together beautifully, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved in your book where you talked about, I feel like this, this connects and where you talked mm. about the humble Christ. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, your family and uh, the people that you come from mm-hmm. referring to Christ as the humble. And mm-hmm. I found that to be really beautiful because I believe that that's what you're talking about here. You know, when you talk about Abuelita faith and you talk about the women who are in your lineage and you talk about everyday ordinary people who love Jesus and love people mm-hmm. and are doing the actual work, you know, like it's one thing to, um, and academia is so beautiful and important. And I'm so thankful for the work because I have so greatly benefited. But when it's disconnected from the real life practices of love, mm-hmm and service and sacrifice and generosity and care that it becomes this tension you know of integrity where people are not living what they're doing and i thought you talking about the humble christ and the way he serves us and the way he operates in the world and all the people Mm -hmm. that you just mentioned in scripture it's a really beautiful way of thinking about him can you say more about the humble christ and where that comes from yeah um so uh I specifically heard of, of this idea of los humildes, which is our, the humble, um, from Miguel de la Torre, and he he's Cuban, and so he kind of talks about how there's this, um, you know, there's the white elite European Christ, right, mm-hmm. that many of us have been introduced to or we know, and then there's there's the Christ of los humildes, there's the Christ of the humble, right, the humble Christ, as you mentioned, um, and it, it's he sort of talks about it, and this is, I mean, how I understand it is the clash of these two Jesuses, you know, when when the colonizers arrived, you know, in the new world. And it's the clash of, you know, the the powerful, and we even see it today, right? The yeah, clash of like, <laughs> the, the, the powerful, like, I'm not gonna, you know, nobody's gonna tread on me type of Jesus right. versus the Jesus that obviously gives his life. Um, the Jesus that, you know, does all the things that we just so adore about Jesus, all the things that we want to emulate about Jesus. And so it's that clash of the two Jesuses. And I felt like, you know, I, again, like growing up, I, I, I saw an example of one type of Jesus. And not perfectly, of course. I mean, you know, white Jesus has infiltrated everything and every, you know, aspect of everything. You know, my grandmother, she has a statue of white Jesus on her, <laughs> in her room. So, you know, it's, it's imperfectly. But um, I do see this, I, I did see this clash. You know, I had this one idea of this, of this humble Jesus, of this, um, you know, this Christ who who is again informal and just sort right. of just hangs out and you know meets us where we're at and and is working and moving and is alive in our everyday experiences you know and the way my my grandmother set the table for all all of us in the family you know every night and and just these um experiences you know and then i was sort of introduced to the elite you know the elite christ the mm. the one that is um anything but humble really uh when i started my formal seminary education right um i had to sort of come to terms with this christ and obey this this elite white european christ or else you know if i stepped out of my role as a woman or if i was too cuban or too loud or any of these things you know i i I would clash with that white european christ you know so Mm. i think it was um trying to tease apart well well which one you know 
which one's the Christ that like I really want to get to know more of? And and I, mm. I hesitate to say the real one. Of course, we want to say the real Jesus is the humble one. Um, but I, I don't want to excuse how Jesus has become, you know, how it's so common for this white Jesus to be the dominant Jesus. You know, I don't want to pretend that that that's just like a side thing that we don't have to worry about. So um, so yeah, so anyway, I I think it's just kind of dealing with that clash and identifying with the one that I think, you know, we should identify with, and that is um, the Jesus of Los Humildes. Oh, my goodness, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. The humble one. That And isn't that the one that's the most attractive, mm-hmm. mysterious? Right, the right. one that draws you in. And I mm-hmm. love how Ashley pointed out just the... The orthodoxy versus the orthopraxy of right. it was one thing to have mm-hmm. you know right belief and it's another thing to have that right. right living combined and I feel like when you talk about the humble Christ that's what came to mind of like it was both fully embodied and an yep, invitation right. for us to embody that and you model that so well Kat in your writing in your actual real lived faithful life can you tell us tell pump your book girl we got we we are both already big fans we're ready to pump it hard and we've you've referenced it so many you've dropped so many beautiful nuggets and i know everyone is salivating at this point so can you share a little bit more about your book yeah so yeah so i mean like you said i've shared a little bit um but i think the main thing of what i want to um you know kind of have people see or understand is this idea that, um, you know, genuine faith for me and for many of us can also be, because of course there's so many different expressions of faith, but a faith that is embodied, right? A faith mm-hmm. that lives in our hands, a faith that, um, again, is is not lofty, but informal, you know, a faith um, like Tabitha's that sows yeah. and creates um, with her hands and, you know, a faith like Rizba, for example, you know, yes. who who through her life i mean she she literally changed the course of israel um you know there was a famine in israel there it hadn't rained in three years everyone's starving and so david you know asks god like what do you know what do we do to vindicate this like how do i fix this and god's like oh by the way you know saul kind of messed with the gibeonites and kind of and murdered them and there was no you know something needs to be repaid so he was like okay so whatever to make a long story short um, they wanted to. They, they wanted um, like blood for blood, right? Um, for the people that that was killed and saw that saw killed um, from the Gibeonites. Mm-hmm. So he goes and they kill um, the, his children, right? So which part of them were Rizpah's sons? So they go and they. He's like, okay, just kill these people and we'll be fine. You know, <laughs> you killed us, mm-hmm. we'll kill you. We're good. But what happened was that, you know, the, the Rizpah's sons were killed. It was unjust. They weren't buried. Of course, we know that there had to be proper burial. So she puts her body on the line for six months and protests, yeah. like peacefully protests, like at their site, at the site of their dead bodies. And it literally wasn't until David caught wind of what she did and he, you know, made restitution. He buried their bodies properly. And that's when God brought rain. And it was, mm. you know, there had to be justice um, in, right there had to be justice in order for the rain to fall for people to not be hungry i mean she saved all these people um for just doing the right thing and right. that wasn't even like it wasn't even her like oh i have to do that no it was just like her being her like her mourning yeah. and her grieving and her protesting um this uh, this injustice right yeah and so that's sort of you know what i think um so that's sort of what i want to bring out in my book like yes. the everyday raw real experiences of desperate people right right um, 
so yeah, yeah. so that's a little bit of that and, and I can share more on a few. Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. I just, I have Ooh. to tell you, I was Ooh. reading, yeah, exactly. I was reading that chapter by the pool yesterday and I literally could not stop the tears from coming down my, oh my eyes. Gosh. And you guys, she Aww. opens up talking about George Floyd and like his mother. And then she talks about mothers of the movement of justice mm-hmm, that started mm-hmm. with Trayvon Martin and um, George Zimmerman when that happened and all these mothers in the movement, mother of Sandra Bland and all these different women. And then you you tell us this story of Ritzba, who I've read, but I had never considered it in light of yeah, this. And, same. you know, the, the the sitting by for six months and I you, like she graphically and beautifully um, describes what it would have been like for a mother to be swatting at vultures. And because she was working mm-hmm. to keep animals and birds from right. devouring her son's bodies as they were just sitting in this town square to be a reminder to people that justice had been served and how she waited for that six months to, you know, get those bodies. And just this picture for me, I jumped immediately to Christ and the women who mm-hmm. were waiting by the by the cross and waiting by the tomb yeah. and, you know, his body there and just what God did. And I just had this just reaction. And then you go on to describe even more mothers in the movement, you know, um, in Latin America. You talk about mm-hmm. in Argentina, the women mm-hmm. who were, you know, deeply committed to justice during communism. And I just I mean, I was just so blown away and and reminded again how good God is through ordinary people. And we never know when our ordinary life is going to intersect with something that is so very extraordinary, something that Mm -hmm. God is doing on the earth, some some way that God wants to bring freedom. And as I considered the women through the Bible, reading through your book, I was completely blown away. And so I think there's probably people listening who feel like they have a very ordinary life and they're probably tired of being faithful. They are tired of showing up in their life every day. They are probably very tired of doing the Mm. right thing. They are tired and exhausted and weary of maybe raising children or going to work, doing the right thing over and over again, or maybe even their faith, you know, showing up and being um, committed to Christ every day. And so what would Mm. you say to the ordinary person who's just like, I'm so tired of being faithful. I don't see where this is going. I cannot experience God in this. Well, first I'd say y'all need to read her book because it will encourage you, but. <laughs> Come on now, that's <laughs> what, right. What would you say to them? Just the ordinary person yeah. being faithful, unseen, you know, they're just right. ordinary life. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, first of all, for that beautiful description of my chapter. Um, I've heard a couple people say that they have cried when reading my book. And I'm like, wow, Mm -hmm. I did not think that that would be a reaction. So that's really interesting to hear. But um, what I would say, I mean, again, that's so hard to answer um, because I feel that way too. And I don't often know, you know, sometimes I feel that way too. And I don't often know what to say to myself. But I think doing the research um, that I did for Abuelita Faith and, um, you know, sort of teasing out these women and w- within history and these women within scripture, I realized that that's literally where the mo- the majority of us are all the time, right? We yeah. are in this space where we are tired and actually just wrote a little, you know, blurb on Instagram about this, but we're, we're experiencing joy and grief at the same time. And sometimes it's so hard to peel the two apart. And, you know, we're... life is just being life and there's joy and there's sorrow and there's beauty and there's pain and we're exhausted at trying to do all of that and feel all of that at the same time Mm. um but yeah i think that we as christians um 
you know, have been given. And I like to say that we love the stories of of Moses parting the Red Sea and we love the stories of David and Goliath and we love these big stories, but that's not the majority of the stories and that's not the majority of where Mm. God sort of exists in the narrative, Um, you know, and I think it, it does come from a very, obviously, you know, you can say it's a consumer Christianity or you can say it's whatever, um, but that's not the majority of the, of the, you know, of the Bible. Um, I think of, I think of Paul when he is just on his, you know, doing his mission and he's traveling and he's, you know, everything's sort of a hot mess. He doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know what to do. He's just, you know, appearing in one place, getting kicked out, starting riots. And he has a dream of a man that tells him, you know, hey, we really need you to come to Macedonia, come to Macedonia. So he's like, okay. He gets to Macedonia and the first person he meets is Lydia and it's a woman and she's praying with the women in, in the community. And that's where, you know, the gospel just takes off in Philippi through a group of mm. women praying, you know, and it started right. with a dream of a man saying, come to Macedonia, we need your help. Mm. You think Paul expected to run into a group of women? Um, I don't think so. But I think that it's in these very average everyday, hey, I stumbled upon this group of women. Wait a minute. And look what just happened. Um, I think it's that's where the majority of um, life happens and the majority of faith happens. Um, we look back and they're extraordinary moments and they're beautiful and they're, oh my goodness. But, you know, in the moment, it's just, it feels like happenstance or it just mm. feels, you know, whatever. Um, and so, yeah. And so what I would just say, uh, what I would say to myself really um is to to always be on the lookout for God in those little uh, seemingly insignificant um, spaces, right? In the ni de aquí, ni de allá, in the not here nor there, in the in between, mm-hmm. um, you know, places. Because I think that that's where um, we find the, the most holy and the most beautiful, and and God just moving most powerfully. Um, yeah. Oh, that's so good. So I think good. So, one of the things that, um, as you were saying that just life in the in-between, that's where most of life is lived. It's yes. not on the mountaintop. Right. But I think so many of the sermons and books that we've consumed, I think especially in the North American church, they center on that mountaintop moment so right. much so that you might subconsciously believe that if you're not in some sort of ascension moment, you might be doing it wrong. Right. And that's not right. true. We're not doing exactly. it wrong in the ordinary right. faithfulness and showing up when nobody sees what you're doing, but you know you're being faithful to what God called you to do. Yes, so, so uh, good. Kat, thank yeah, you so much. Yeah, I think much. about, oh no, you're welcome. Um, I think about Miriam, actually, and uh, sorry, I feel, I'm like, I feel like I keep saying, I talk about this in my book, and she's in my book, but, <laughs> but I do, I, I think about Miriam. Um, she, and one of my favorite details about her is that, in the middle, like they're in, they had just left Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land and they're roaming the, the wilderness. And, you know, obviously things are uncertain. It's the wilderness. You know, of course, we know that they were miserable there, right. at, you know, at some point or the other. Um, but right after it was right after the the um, the Red Sea was parted and, you know, they finally arrive at the other side and they realize they're safe. And she takes out her timbrels and she starts dancing and leading the community in dance. Mm. And I just love that detail, you know, because, of course, she's celebrating the fact that they, you know, arrived to the other side of the sea safely. But it's this idea of just like pulling out her timbrel and just leading everybody in dance and in celebration in the middle of like, I mean, 
the the freaking wilderness right mm-hmm. like in the middle of they they have nowhere you know really to lay their heads they have no sense of security in them in that moment they have really nothing other than we've made it another day and we're alive and you know god is with us and we're yeah. gonna dance and we're gonna celebrate mm. and i just think that there's something so beautiful in that um i see that as one of those like in between everyday experiences um you know where where you, there's just celebration and there's joy um and it's nothing too lofty and it's nothing too you know she didn't declare this you know mary this this like mother mary you know declaration or she didn't di- no she just she didn't even say anything at all she just right, danced um, right so yeah so i just i think of that i think of that when when you know that i feel like a lot of life is also lived there too um yeah. when we have really not much other than the moment right that, that just passed that we can smile or celebrate or say yes you know um we've made it through this um so yeah like you said i mean the wilderness <gasps> was in front of them she's not right. like they, they didn't even really have a solid concrete plan right. of what was next but they're like hey we can at least celebrate and praise the progress of what's happened yes. right. 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 Also, right. Like, joy is resistance right like come on joy exactly. is resistance. Come on. you know when we are exactly. when we stand and proclaim in the middle of this freaking hell i'm going through i will praise right. and i'm gonna yeah. dance and i'm gonna have joy you know there's something right. about that that is so life-giving like it makes a wellspring up you know right mm. right right oh, yeah good. so good well kat thank you so much for joining us on why though you are an Honorary Wytheoian. That's all I can think of. Wytheoian. <laughs> we are just so pumped to have you. Yes. Aww, we are in your so corner much. in this day, in the days and months and years to come. Yeah. We are honored, honored, honored to have you. And listeners, if this is your first introduction, welcome Kat. She is now she is now a voice in your life, yeah. one that will encourage you. <laughs> you are shaping culture. You are changing the world. And it is an honor to sit at your feet. Thanks yeah. for joining us. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Hey listeners, remember to subscribe and comment. It helps others to find the show. To learn more about Tiffany's writing, speaking, or books, visit tiffanybloom.com. To learn more about Ashley's writing, speaking, or books, visit ashabercrombie.org. See you next week.